Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. Uh, and before we get into it, just want to let you know um, I might sound a little weird today. I just had mouth surgery. Don't worry, Prestige heads, I will be okay. Uh, we are very excited to welcome to the podcast once again Kevin Kleiman. Kevin is a research analyst at the Avoiding Great Power War Project at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And we invited Kevin to talk a little bit about this technology issue between the U.S. and China and the EU and China that has been roiling the policy debate space. So, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for people who might not be aware of what exactly is going on, could you maybe just from a general perspective frame, what is the issue with technology? What do the U.S. and European leaders say they're worried about with China? What is China produced? What do we rely on? Just give a general picture for people who might not know. So China is the leading high-tech manufacturer in the world. They produce about half of all smartphones, half of all laptops, the vast majority of green technology products, whether that's solar panels, wind turbines, all of the associated parts from those technologies. They are also a leading manufacturer of more advanced technologies like semiconductors or uh, machine learning models. Uh, But the big concern that the United States and Europe have are that they have become increasingly dependent on China for assembly and manufacturing of what could become defense-critical components. So large technology companies in the U.S. and Europe rely on China for the vast majority of their manufacturing capacity. 95% of all Apple products, for instance, are manufactured in China. Apple has tried to move that manufacturing capacity to India and Vietnam, but failed to do so because it doesn't have the right mix of a large pool of very educated and both uh, highly uneducated workforce, um, as well as the mix of suppliers that are useful in China. The rhetoric from the U.S. is that this is a huge national security threat, that if we go to war with China over Taiwan, then China will stop producing these technologies and we will lose the war over Taiwan because China will stop supplying U.S. companies. I would say that we should get to a place where we're not going to go to war over Taiwan and that the prior questions are... I'm sorry, how dare you? Okay, first of all. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not the American prestige position. Uh, Taiwan war yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I, I realize I'm risking the Lockheed sponsorship here, but <laughs> the policies that we are taking to what the, the common term in the, in the US and Europe right now is to de-risk from China. That is to cut off China from investment, US technology, and U.S. personnel who might be able to help it develop its technology ecosystem, those policies, in fact, increase the risk of war over Taiwan and so make it such that we are on an economic war footing uh, that can then turn kinetic. So, Kevin, um, uh, let's. I want to talk about de-risking. Before we get into your pieces in, in, in sort of general terms, the, the concept of de-risking and 
imposing export controls and really onshoring uh, or trying to onshore production of, of these components. Is there an argument to be made that what's really happening here is that the U.S. government is trying to acknowledge that the last 40 years of uh, neoliberal free trade policy have failed in the U.S. and that we need to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. and we're going to do this under the guise of this supposed national security threat. But in reality, what's going on behind the scenes is there's a a shift happening in fundamentally economic policy. Yes, there is that argument to be made. So economic policymakers are not a monolith. There are a lot of economic policymakers in the Biden administration and elsewhere who genuinely believe that and who genuinely believe that trickle-down economics failed, that neoliberalism was not a good model for U.S. economic development. I do not think that that is the majority view, and I do not think that that is the real motivation here. So you see a lot of rhetoric about the foreign policy, about a foreign policy for the middle class. But the reality is that the people who are designing advanced semiconductors are not typical middle-class Americans who are going to be able to earn $200,000 a year in those jobs. And the policies that are being, the policy steps that are being taken are not going to reverse neoliberalism. So the CHIPS Act, for instance, which contains $39 billion in semiconductor manufacturing incentives and then an additional uh, 12 for other incentives, that will increase U.S. Mar- global market share of semiconductor production from 10% to 14%. That's a lot. We were going to erode more market share. That is not the U.S. having the plurality of manufacturing capacity as we had before. And similarly with, with Europe, their incentives will only budget a little. The same is, can be said for EV batteries, uh, where there's a lot of incentives now. We're throwing tens of billions of dollars at EV battery plants. That will move our global production of EV battery plants uh, from about, I think it's about 5% now to about 10%. That is not the reversal of neoliberalism. And you have to look at the details of the policies. So there was a proposal to have prevailing wage requirements and strong union jobs required uh, in the CHIPS Act. That was cut. Because who is lobbying for the CHIPS Act? It's companies like Intel, who are notorious union busters, who are not good employers, and who do not actually care about national security in the US. The reason why we had jobs go overseas is because companies like Intel said, we can make more money by producing in China. They now see that they can make more money by producing in the US and getting tens of billions of dollars in corporate subsidies. That's not even to mention the states that have no money to actually spend on these projects, but are sending billions of dollars to big companies in hopes that it will spark economic growth, all you have to do is look at the failure of Foxconn in Wisconsin to know that handing out uh, corporate welfare doesn't cause economic growth. So having debunked that claim a little bit, there's a second uh, thing that I would would like to ask you about, uh, which is, uh, I'm sure you saw this back in March, there was a report uh, that generated a lot of very panicky headlines about China surpassing the U.S. or surpassing the West, I guess, in high tech and leading the world in like 30, I think it was 37 out of 45 or something 
uh, critical technology areas. This report was put out by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which just so happens to get funding from Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, Oracle. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the thing here. Uh, you know, Palo Alto Networks, Lockheed Martin, Boeing Australia. So uh, there's some reason to maybe be a little skeptical about this. But I wonder. I wanted to get your uh, take on this report and and what it's actually saying uh, and whether we should. This is something to to consider in terms of you know China is oh China is surpassing the West. Uh, is that is that a fair uh, take? The report is just out and out wrong. I, I I don't mean to to smear the report. Ha- would be happy to talk with the authors one on one. But if you no, go we're down, okay with that. You can smear the if, report. It's fine. If you go if you go down the list of the forty four technologies, they are just out and out wrong on a lot of the specifics. So they claim that uh, China is ahead or could be ahead on nuclear. That's not true. They claim that China is ahead on synthetic biology. That's not true. They claim that China could be ahead on advanced aircraft engines. Not true. Uh, there are co- many, many other areas where unless you're in the specifics of which firms are ahead and by how much and in which components, it's difficult to explain. But when I assessed the report initially, of the 44, they say a little over uh, half are at risk uh, of China being ahead they're wrong in their determinations on about 10. So that means that it's kind of a nothing report. I put out a report in December of 2021 that assessed the US-China balance in artificial intelligence, 5G, quantum computing, uh, and other quantum technologies, biotechnology, green tech. um, And the determination of the report is that on current trend lines, China is likely to be competitive in each of these technologies. Does that mean that it's a national security risk to the United States? Not necessarily. That's if, what unless- I wanted to ask. What do they mean? What are they actually worried about? Uh, so there's the, the you know, to take the vulgar Marxist perspective on it, they're just worried about their money and they're using national security as some bullshit excuse. But maybe you could sort of frame what they say they're worried about and what you think they actually are worried about. They say they're worried about a couple things. One is that the U.S. and its allies should be number one in everything. We, you, you know, we are the free world. Therefore, we should have a lead in every emerging technology. That, of course, ignores the reality of political economy. That is, it doesn't matter if you publish the most patents in a particular technology. It matters if the small and medium-sized firms in your country are actually using that technology, where the U.S. and its allies have a huge lead over China. But just to say... Another claim that uh, proponents of the China's catching up in technology, so this is a huge risk argument, say, is that this means that defense departments become dependent on China. So if the defense department wants to run a military base in a new country, and that country has telecommunications equipment that is from China, then that's a security risk. I'd say, sure, that's a security risk. China's going to spy on that base regardless of whether or not you're running the data over Huawei networks or whether it hacks into your U.S. network. So I don't think that makes that big of a difference, but I would I would say, sure, that's a more reasonable argument. In reality, it's much more about what I said earlier, which is if and when we have a hot war with China, 
then there will be a huge economic tit for tat where we will sever most U.S. companies from China and China may do the same. That would mean that if China is producing critical components for the missiles that we will launch into China, that we cannot launch those missiles. That is a big part of onshoring these products. And so the ultimate justification for the CHIPS Act is that we need to be able to produce the semiconductors that go into U.S. defense articles. And the CHIPS Act likely will mean that the U.S. has enough domestic production, uh, but no advanced semiconductors are used in uh, U.S. defense articles. So F-35s don't depend on advanced semiconductors, which means that the justification for export controls on advanced semiconductors to China is totally bunk because we don't actually use those super advanced chips in something like the most advanced weapon system on the planet, aka the plane that doesn't work. (laughs) So maybe you could talk a little bit about the CHIPS Act in general. What was the CHIPS Act and why do you think that it's not working out? The CHIPS Act was a long-standing effort by the U.S. semiconductor industry to bring manufacturing into a highly profitable area for them. They have a lot of U.S. employees, and they would like to produce in the U.S. as they did originally. The semiconductor sector was founded in the United States. The semiconductor was invented in the United States in the 50s. Intel was, by and far, by and large, the leading global company But over time, Japan became a major competitor to the U.S. Uh, Singapore and Hong Kong became manufacturing centers. Korea became a major competitor to the U.S., later Taiwan, and now China, where China is projected to have the majority of global semiconductor manufacturing by 2030 or in the 2030s. Taiwan has the bulk today. South Korea and Japan have more than the United States. The United States would like that manufacturing capacity because it has spillover effects. So when you manufacture a larger number of semiconductors, you learn the process and you innovate with time. The process engineering is very important. That's part of why Taiwan is the global leader today, because they produce the bulk of uh, contract semiconductors. So TSMC gets more than half of the world's orders uh, to make semiconductors. And that gives them an innovation advantage. U.S. firms want that too. So they went to Congress and they went to the Biden administration and said, we will lose the war with China unless you give us $50 billion. And Congress said, yes, we're happy to. That being said, the CHIPS Act was part of a larger package that had another $280 billion for science, research, innovation spending. That all passed and has not been authorized. So the only part of the CHIPS Act that stands today are the bits that are corporate welfare for the semiconductor industry, which is not part of a bigger U.S. innovation policy unless it comes with the other $300 billion, which it seems like it's not going to. What's been going on with the other $300 billion? The other $300 billion is up in the air. People were confident at the end of last year that it would eventually get authorized. Now it's in limbo. There are talks of another anti-China bill being a big push uh, from the Senate, from Schumer's office this year. 
it's unclear if authorization for CHIPS Act funding will be included. So I this might be a bit orthogonal, but what is China planning on doing with regards to Taiwan? If, if Taiwan is obviously such a huge issue for both the U.S. and China, um, are, is the worry that they're going to just seize Taiwan and the entire semiconductor industry? What is going on? That is a myth that has really negative effects on the policy discussion. Uh, there's been a big debate in recent weeks about whether or not the U.S. should threaten to bomb its ally, Taiwan, uh, and bomb TSMC plants in order to provide deterrence to China to say, if you seize Taiwan, you cannot use TSMC plants. That misunderstands the technology entirely. So just to take one example, the most advanced machines that Taiwan use, uses in its manufacturing, or that TSMC, sorry, uses in its semiconductor manufacturing plants are provided by the Dutch company ASML. Uh, and they're called extreme ultraviolet lithography machines to print patterns onto semiconductors. Those are more expensive than an aircraft carrier by 50%. They have 500,000 components. The only way they work is with a team of hundreds of people that know exactly what to do when part 4,995 breaks down and to replace it and what software glitch to fix as a result. If China seizes all of Taiwan, no problem, and gets every TSMC engineer to comply and to swear fealty to Xi Jinping, they still cannot produce semiconductors out of those TSMC plants because they will not have the technical support from ASML to operate the machines. That is just one of a hundred choke points that is inherent to that. But that's before the export controls that Europe is considering adopting on China. Let's get to that in a sec. I want to get to that in a sec, but just to continue on this... um, so is that, again, just bullshit, or do people not understand? People imagine it's like a car factory, and they're going to seize a car factory and make new cars? Or is this just total cynicism? People are saying something they know is false to gin up you know, anger. For the most part, people genuinely don't understand. Semiconductors are really complicated. It's a tough industry to understand. I initially thought it was like a car factory. But when you talk to people who understand the semiconductor industry, they say, No, you cannot just seize a plant and then run it. And again, what would actually happen is that parts of plants would be damaged, that people who work for TSMC would not willingly work for China immediately. People who have knowledge of specific processes would be gone. Each of those factors is enough to guarantee that China would not be able to use the machines. There's also talk of moving the equipment into China, which just doesn't work. I was going to ask that. Why doesn't that work? Here, two quick questions. Why doesn't that work? And then why can't China just take the place of the Dutch company and just start producing whatever the Dutch company produces? So they're related. I'll answer the second first. China cannot replace ASML because of how capital intensive it is to develop these technologies. So for ASML to produce its most advanced machine, It took 30 years and tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, and a lot of trial and error. So ASML stopped selling that machine 
into China in 2019 under pressure from the U.S., meaning that it doesn't have a direct analog to learn from. But it's also that the components for that machine come from all around the world, and China is banned from buying them. So it cannot buy them from the U.S., from Japan, from other countries due to U.S.-led export control regimes. Why can't it move the machines into China? It could, but then it can't use them uh, because it doesn't have the technical support from the world-class experts in Taiwan, the U.S., uh, and the Netherlands. This is a natural place to talk about export controls. So let's talk about export controls. First, maybe talk about the United States and then maybe your recent article released for Just Security on uh, the EU. So in October of 2022, the U.S. declared economic war more than it had at any other point on China. It said that advanced semiconductors and the tools that are used to produce them cannot be sold to China, not just by the U.S., but by any country using a tool called the foreign direct product rule. This is the same policy that was invoked on Huawei and is a really radical shift in the global economic order. Before the control on Huawei, there had been no use of the foreign direct product rule except once in 1959 when it was established, and then twice to reinterpret it beforehand. Since 2020, we've had a very severe restriction on Huawei. We've had two very severe restrictions on Russia and Belarus. And then we had two more in October. And the two in October meant that companies in the U.S. that provide advanced chips, that is NVIDIA and AMD, cannot sell those chips to China. That means that if China wants to build a system like ChatGPT, it's way harder because they don't have the semiconductors that you need to create large computers that then are used to train those AI systems. And that is not the justification that the U.S. gave for that control, though. The justification is that they said that artificial intelligence violates human rights. No self-reflection there. Uh, and they said that large computers uh, can be used to design better nuclear weapons. That's a concern. Sure, they can be used to design better nuclear weapons. But has a nuclear weapon been used since World War II? No. How about we try to avoid the use of nuclear weapons by not starting economic wars? But that's uh, neither here nor there. What the EU is doing on export controls is duplicating these, these controls. So the controls really put a target on the back of the Netherlands and Japan because they were imposed unilaterally. And the U.S. said ASML in the Netherlands and these two companies, Tokyo Electron and Nikon in Japan. If you do not stop selling advanced semiconductor production machines into China, we will crush your companies. We will impose sanctions on you that will break your back. So they immediately complied. And now the whole of the EU is planning to similarly adopt export controls on semiconductors, which will mean that German companies that produce the chemicals that are used in semiconductor production processes, the mirrors that are used in the equipment, and the lasers that are used in the equipment will no longer sell to China. That has really hurt China's semiconductor industry. That has meant that its uh, 
imports of semiconductor production equipment fell by 15% in 2022, and its output of semiconductors fell by 15% in the first quarter of this year. Kev, first of all, I mean, I I think we need to talk about what the lack of a Chinese chat GPT is going to do to the Chinese think piece industry, because what are people going to write hysterical columns about in Chinese media? This is is terrifying. Um, But can you can you talk a little bit about what these export controls do to the companies in ostensibly U.S. allies in places like South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, the EU that sell a lot of stuff to China and are and then get told unilaterally you can't do that anymore and it, it, what that does to their business and how far the US can realistically push this kind of thing before there starts to be some pushback from from the countries whose whose major industries are uh, are, are suffering because of it I wish I could tell you Derek that there's a point at which there will be that pushback The issue is that the reality of the semiconductor market prevents that to some extent. One, the U.S. has total control over the semiconductor market. U.S. companies by market value make up 50% of the global semiconductor market. It used to be more, but it's still enormous. They control all of the design of semiconductors, the majority of the equipment for semiconductors, and a lot of the innovation in uh, semiconductors as well. That means that when the U.S. says you will be cut off of this global market if you do not comply, the countries have to go along. There was a a belief in Washington when the export controls came out that the Netherlands and Japan would not go along, but they have. They've gone along completely, and it's gone better for, for the Biden administration than you ever would have expected. What's happening to the companies? The important thing to mention here is that the semiconductor industry is in recession. People are not buying electronics like they were during COVID because people were at home, they needed better electronics, and they got a little bit of income support from their government. So they spent it on electronics. Now, global demand for smartphones and for computers is way down. So every semiconductor company is in trouble regardless of these export controls, and it's hard to pull apart the impact of the export controls and the semiconductor industry recession. But What that means is that these companies right now are not trying to ramp up production. Uh, So they don't need China at the moment to ramp up production. That gives them an opportunity to look for other markets. And when you look at a company like ASML, ASML has said publicly many times, this will not hurt our business because there are are very few machines that ASML can make. Each, as I said, of the most advanced machines costs much more than an aircraft carrier. So they're only producing a couple every year, and there are gigantic wait lists. So the fact that China is no longer on the wait list just bumps other other players up on the wait list. Um, And that means that companies like... Like what? Like Israel? Like who are we talking about? (laughs) Israel doesn't buy the most advanced machines, but they that there actually is a, a relevant Israel angle here where Intel would like to buy an Israeli semiconductor manufacturer named Tower. And China's response to these measures has been to block that purchase. 
uh, which has made it really hard for Intel to say that it can credibly compete with TSMC or Samsung because it's been unable to buy this Israeli contract manufacturer. But that's an aside. Back to the question of how that will affect semiconductor uh, equipment makers and others. The U.S. has given some leeway in at least the CHIPS Act implementation and in some of the export control rollouts to South Korean companies. So it has said, South Korean companies, SK Hynix and Samsung, you can have a one plus year exemption and continue to have production capacity in China. The Commerce Department has said that you cannot continue increasing the sophistication of that production capacity in China, but you don't have to shut down your factories right away. But one of the conditions for receiving money from the U.S. government under the CHIPS Act is that you will not make major investments as a semiconductor company in China. So that's an attempt to redirect that money from China to the U.S., though, of course, producing semiconductors in the U.S. is, as the um, chief financial officer of TSMC said, uh, building the factory is four or five times as expensive as it would be in Taiwan. What are the potential negative impacts of the EU semiconductor industry being cut off from China? It's more speculative to say the biggest impact, which I believe is the biggest impact, will be that it will lead to other industries in the EU also being cut off from China. So the EU is considering the Net Zero Industry Act, which will make it much harder for Uh, or will make it easier, rather, for EU governments to stop procuring renewables from China. There is also outbound investment limits that the EU is uh, likely to adopt that will mean that the EU is less likely to spend money on Chinese technology companies. When you look at that broader picture, that looks like two much less integrated economies, i.e., two economies that would be much more likely to go to war because when NATO backs the U.S. in a war over Taiwan and the U.S. says, okay, we're doing a global sanctions regime like we did on Russia, but this time on China, the EU can say, well, we've already started down this path. We've already started cutting off Chinese technology companies. It will hurt and it will hurt desperately, but the U.S. is going to sanction our companies if we don't go along, so we're going to do it anyway. To the specifics of your question on what it means for the EU semiconductor industry to be a part, it will hurt EU companies. It means that not not every company is ASML where you have a very limited supply. So the German companies that I mentioned earlier, Merck, Trump, Zeiss, those companies will see reduced profit margins and less revenue. Uh, again, that will mean that Europe's effort to have a manufacturing renaissance and have uh, European domestic semiconductor production be at its height as it was in, in the 90s, it might fail because the companies that would invest in Europe aren't earning the money in China that, uh, that they need to then invest in Europe. Let's talk about quantum computing. So first, what the fuck is quantum computing? Uh, seriously, I mean, I, I, I mean, the way, you know, that's, it's funny the way Danny put it, but like, what is this thing? And is it really a, an issue? Like it, it, this technology is so nascent. I, I don't understand what the, the concern is, but, but you know, it kind of, you know, 
what is what is the issue with this stuff? When are we getting the hollow deck, Kevin? The hollow deck will only come when Zuck allows it. Um, <laughs> quantum computing is not an issue to answer your question, Derek. There are no applications of quantum computing today. The earliest we think we might have an application of quantum computing that would work is in the 2030s. What is quantum computing? Quantum computing is just a different way to build a computer. So a, a traditional computer uses bits, binary digits of zero, zeros and ones to encode information. A quantum computer, uh, which was theorized in the late 20th century, uses atoms to encode information. And atoms can contain a lot more information because they have a spin, they have a valence, they have a they have a charge of their electrons. Uh, the idea is to use quantum bits or qubits, individual atoms, to build a computer with much more computational power, orders of magnitude more computational power, because each vehicle for encoding information has much more potential. The U.S. views quantum computing as a potential national security threat because the main application of quantum computing will be to break standard encryption. The way that encryption works is you generate a very large number that, uh, or a very specific prime number that becomes your encryption key. And in order to decrypt something, you need to be able to solve for that number. We have provably difficult algorithms to generate such prime numbers. With quantum, those algorithms no longer work. It's not difficult because the computer is so powerful. So in theory, encryption that is used to uh, encrypt your email or your texts could be broken, and a country like Russia or China could then read your emails or texts. Now, of course, Russia and China already hack into all our communications as the U.S. hacks into all of theirs. So this is kind of moot in my view. But the U.S. has said... Yes, but we're allowed to do that. They're not allowed to do that to us. Okay, let's be clear. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, we we own the vast majority of the undersea internet cables. So by right, by property, we can read whatever we want. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for saying what we were all thinking. So the Biden administration has said that by 2035, all U.S. government agencies need to move to quantum secure encryption. That's a, a bold plan. I doubt that that will happen. There are not standards for quantum secure encryption. NIST, the gov relevant government agency, is releasing them this year. And so what I've written about in foreign policy is that export controls on semiconductors are widely considered to be a big success. They've collapsed China's semiconductor industry. They've shown unity among the allies that the U.S. bullied uh, and Washington. And they've proven that the U.S. can take bold steps with economic coercion without reference to the fact that we mostly criticize China for using economic coercion. But that's just the first. But again, we're allowed to do these things. China is not allowed to do that. It's not fair. These export controls, though, by the admission of U.S. policymakers, are just the first round. We are planning export controls on quantum computing, biotechnology, 
and whatever other technology we can get our hands on. This has been said explicitly by Gina Raimondo uh, and implicitly by Jake Sullivan. I lay out in my article on foreign policy what export controls on quantum computing are likely to look like. And so they would look like restrictions on the sale to China or perhaps to all adversary countries or all countries who we can't uh, verify are using quantum computing for the enhancement of Uncle Sam's uh, biceps. Uh, Those countries uh, would not be able to buy without a license hardware for quantum computers, software for quantum computers, and maybe cloud services that are on quantum computers. This is a really big deal because there basically isn't a global quantum computing industry. This is a really new sector that has been propped up by VC money because there was free money for many years. And now there are a couple of companies in this space. If the U.S. goes too far with these measures, it might just behead every U.S. quantum computing company because we fear that China will use it for evil, even though there's no evidence that they can do so in the next 10 plus years. That, to me, is a red flag that shows that we are willing to go really far with these measures. So with semiconductor export controls, the U.S. expected that China would respond by cutting off rare earth minerals. They expected a near full-scale economic war. China didn't do that. China has responded by targeting a couple U.S. companies, as I referenced, by blocking Intel from pursuing its business strategy by acquiring other companies, by launching an investigation into the U.S. memory maker Micron, and by trying to stall uh, the British semiconductor company Arm from its IPO, though that has failed. This shows that Beijing is willing to talk, is willing to say, you don't want us to have these specific technologies we are willing to take small steps in return. If the U.S. then says, actually, we're going to try and cut you off from every emerging technology, and we don't care what you do in response, that's a situation where I make the analogy to Japan in 1941, where an embargo on oil sales to Japan was a big factor in leading Japan to lash out and strike Pearl Harbor because we had targeted the heart of Japan's war-making machine. That's a really interesting analogy, but here's my question then. The difference between now is the U.S. and Japan were trading with each other, but they were not reliant on each other economically like the U.S. and China. So how does the the sort of material reality of this sort of global capitalist system with the China and the U.S. are embedded with each other? They're attached to like, you know, the new link game machines, Conjoined twins. Yes, they're, they're conjoined twins. How does that just material reality play into this? Because, I mean, from my perspective, I gestured toward this earlier, the legitimacy of the U.S. government depends on Americans consuming an incredible amount. The legitimacy of the Chinese government depends on economic growth and development, particularly this emergent middle class. Seems like both countries need each other for those fundamental political goals. So what's your take on that? Am I misunderstanding something, et cetera? You're not misunderstanding. And of course, the U.S. consumption of a lot of goods, those are Chinese goods. So just to illustrate the point, and Chinese legitimacy also comes from their number one priority, which is a plan to uh, have reunification with Taiwan. And when there has been 
discussion between U.S. policymakers and Chinese policymakers. China has said, we are not willing to separate the Taiwan issue from other issues. And sure, we can cooperate a little bit on climate change. Sure, we can have talks. But until you make some concessions on Taiwan, we're not willing to reconfigure the relationship. So that just goes to show that there are other considerations that may trump uh, the global capitalist integration. I agree with you, though, that that's the most important difference from the Japan case and that it makes war much less likely because war would be extremely, extremely costly. Even if it China would go to the just- heart, I think beyond cause, I just want to emphasize, it would go to the heart of the legitimacy of both regimes. Both regimes have staked their claims on um, a project that is reliant on this continued economic relationship. It's not just like it would hurt the economy. It, it, it is central in a way that the U.S.-Soviet relationship, the U.S.-Japan relationship just wasn't. Just want to make myself clear. I, I totally agree. And when I say costly, I mean global economic crisis way worse than 2008. I, I mean, even it, just a blockade of Taiwan for a long period of time would cause a global economic crisis on the scale of 2008. So this is like potential for revolution in many countries, if not both the US and China level economic crisis. The reason why that kind of war is still possible is that the people in Washington view the legitimacy of America as not coming from helping poor and working class Americans, but from being number one, from being the global hegemon. And China has challenged that. And if China were to strike at Taiwan, or if there were to be, it's most, it's most likely did not come intentionally. That's the other key point is that if China were to misinterpret something that the US or Taiwan did as a bid for independence, or if the US were to misinterpret a Chinese military exercise as a bid for crackdown on Taiwan, and a war were to go almost halfway, it would not be enough, in my estimation, for Washington and Beijing to say, this risks the regime, this risks our, uh, our legitimacy as, as a nation. The, the incentives for war are strong. And they would play them up and they would underestimate the economic cost, likely. But in terms of how the U.S. system is propped up by consumption and capitalist integration, in the long term, there are countries beyond China. China is very large and we can buy goods that are produced by Southeast Asia. We can buy goods that are produced in Africa and Latin America. I think people in Washington might be willing to have what a quote unquote limited war with China and play the long game of Americans can buy their smartphone from Vietnam at some point and we can go two years without a new iPhone by collapsing China. Uh, So, Kevin, um, maybe we could end here with you talking a little bit about China's response? And and what do you think the Chinese perspective on all of this is? China has consistently said that the U.S. is trying to contain its quote-unquote peaceful rise. This is the most significant proof for that point. So she, during the 20th Party Congress, said that uh, the West, the U.S. and its allies are trying to contain and suppress China. 
suppress in this specific context means control China's technological development. And the entire plan of the Chinese government to break out of the middle income trap is to have a high tech economy that distributes higher productivity growth throughout the economy. This goes to the heart of China's development model. Its response to export controls has been less than anticipated. When it init- when these controls were initially launched, there had been a plan uh, that was leaked to spend $140 billion on the Chinese semiconductor industry, so three times the CHIPS Act. That plan has since been rolled back, and there are much more minor handouts of a couple billion dollars here or there, and more leeway given to Chinese semiconductor companies. The issue is that China has not had success in developing the most advanced semiconductors, which is an obsession of Xi Jinping and others. And that's in part because of massive fraud. There have been uh, a lot of semiconductor investment investors who have gone to jail uh, because they haven't actually delivered on their promises. And the big fund, as it's called in China, the biggest semiconductor manufacturing investment vehicle has gone belly up and its top investors have been uh, arrested. There's not all that much that China can do just through spending to fix this issue. But with enough time, China will be able to catch up in these technologies. These are technologies that we have shown are possible to create. China has a much larger educated labor force than the U.S. and is really innovative in academia and a lot of these spaces. With five or 10 years, China will learn how to develop these technologies. It's a question of whether they can produce them at scale and with a business model that's competitive. I worry that the high-tech war between both countries will spill over into broader and broader economic war, where the US, Europe, Japan, and others will see every economic issue as a potential point of leverage or point of weakness vis-a-vis China. And if and when that happens, that means that China might respond with similar restrictions. So if China were to start restricting the sale of green tech into the US and Europe, that would be a significant escalation or rare earth minerals or its critical components. That leaves us in a place where a Republican president or a somehow even more hawkish Democrat president would be closer to being able to declare war. Kevin Kleiman, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks. Thanks.